Welcome to episode two of the Exercising Health podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Emily Splichel, a world-renowned podiatrist who has taught her unique approach to human movement, foot function, and barefoot science to 20,000 professionals in over 35 countries. She is the author of the book Barefoot Strong and is the founder of Nobosa Technology Innersoles. In our discussion, we cover the four types of flat feet and how to fix them. Dr. Emily describes the connection between the glutes, core, and feet, and how getting all three to work together leads to movement proficiency and longevity. And we also delve into the scientifically backed reasons why training on various surfaces like concrete may increase our risk of developing injuries. All this and more in episode two. For a summary of all the topics spoken about in this video, as well as all the links to Dr. Emily's work, go over to exercisinghealth.net forward slash podcast. Alternatively, if you're watching this podcast on YouTube, then find all the relevant information in the description section of this video. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Okay, so welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, maybe could you please introduce yourself and just tell the audience a little bit about uh, your background and, and who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for having me on the show. My name is Dr. Emily is what I go by. And I am a podiatrist or a uh, foot doctor, but I'm also a human movement specialist. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. And I'm a huge advocate of helping people optimize the way that they move by connecting to their feet, but also to their sensory side of movement. Um, so I'm very much into fascia and breath work. And uh, like I said, I'm just fascinated in the sensory side of movement. I've been talking for a while now uh, about feet on our YouTube channel and our Instagram page as well. And um, through creating all this content, I've realized that while people are somewhat receptive to the information, it doesn't always grab their attention and hold, it doesn't hold the same pizzazz, if you will, um, around topics like the glutes and the core and, you know, sort of those um, fashionable topics. Um, and I've even had people reach out to me and say, um, can you talk about something other than feet for a while? Um, so my question to you is, um, you know, the way we sit is if the feet are the only contact point between the body and the ground and all the other components of the body are wired to the feet, then shouldn't the feet proceed, the feet conversations precede that of the glutes upstream? Uh, and at the core as well, or at the very least, shouldn't the feet be in the same conversation as as those more trending topics? Yeah, so absolutely. So I have the same thought as you. Um, and having taught personal trainers and coaches for the last 10 years, um, that's, that's what I've been trying to do is get people to really think of your feet as part of your core. And then ultimately, your core lays the foundation to the glutes. So any glute conversation that I would have really is a core conversation because I, I often say that your glutes are only as strong as your core is stable. And then technically your core is only as stable as your feet are strong. So there is this kind of interconnected component, um, understanding feet and kind of diving deep into the actual mechanics and sensory side of the feet is quite complex. So I think people kind of leave that to, for, for the next wave of, of understanding the human body. But if it is taught and implemented from the get-go, I feel that you then lay proper 
coordination and stability function patterns, right? So every time you're doing a squat, I want the client or the athlete to be thinking about their foot placement, their foot connection, or is their base set is what I call it when you're neutral. And are you engaging your toes, which engages your arch, so you can get more out of that squat. And it's just built into the actual technique. Um, so yes, I think that the feet should be part of that conversation immediately. Um, and the more that the listeners understand that and the simple, simple cues. So it's it doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be these very intricate movements and exercises for the feet. Really, I just try to get people to connect to the toes and kind of ground and anchor their foot through every movement and just stay you know, connected to their base, which is what I call it. Okay, great. I mean, it, it really does serve as our foundation. And, um, and you speak a lot in your book, uh, Barefoot Strong, around you know, the feet as the foundation of the body and uh, movement you know, sort of having its roots in the ground um, uh, for all closed chain movements, that is. Um, you know, talking uh, specifically about the glutes, um, you mentioned in your book that we we often view the 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 hips as or the glutes as hip extenders, but we don't realize that they're also external rotators, and it's through this rotation that it has an effect downstream at the way that the foot behaves. The the shift in our glute function is really built around how we're able to walk and. The, the most functional position of our lower extremity, I'd probably argue of our entire body, is to be able to stand on one leg. So a single leg stance, right? A single leg stance is really a, a, a strong glute exercise. So I consider it a glute test. So it's how I actually uh, function the strength of the glutes. And that is because of our pelvis being kind of curved and rounded into the... Um, the frontal plane for the listeners out into the frontal plane but that takes the glutes away from just being this hip extender so think like how a, a horse would kick back in a sense that is purely a hip extension movement but because we're really designed to be standing upright and on our feet we have to now kind of balance in this side to side lateral movement or it's the frontal plane and that's the glute wrapping around the pelvis now means it has this rotational component and the glutes are external rotation. And that rotation is influenced all the way down to the feet. Now for the listeners, if they're kind of curious to feel what that feels like is if you're standing on your feet and you roll to the inside of the feet, and then you roll to the outside of the feet, you're technically moving the part of the foot called the subtalar joint, or you're just moving the foot joints, right? Now, when you roll in and then roll out and just keep doing that, all of the listeners should hopefully feel or see that their knees are knocking in and then the knees go out, right? The knees go in, the knees go out. Those are essentially rotations. And then if your hands are on your hips, you'll feel that rotation go all the way up. And then you'll feel if your hands are on your pelvis, the pelvis rocks forward. That interconnected side is what you're explaining. And the external rotation, when your foot goes to the outside of its uh, uh, pressure or inversion, 
that drives that external rotation moment. So I try to have people feel that a squat is not just flex down, extend up, right? It's not just this unilateral or uniplanar movement, but every time you come out of a squat, you're technically doing this, right? So it's a little bit hard to show on, on the camera, but there's this rotation. And then when you go down in a squat, can you feel your legs rotating in and then you stand up and your legs rotate out? The more that the listeners can find the rotation of every single movement, you've just unlocked power. I mean, the cue a lot of coaches use during the squats is is push the the ground apart, and I guess that's a that's a cue to try and uh, you know conceptualize that ex uh, well to try and get external rotation um, and conceptualize it. I don't always think this is the best the best way to to cue it, but it is very common. Um, so yeah. push the knees out as well because external rotation affects the femur, so the position yeah. of the femur. So. Uh, so real quick, those cues are actually not rotational. Those are more, um, so we have the frontal plane, which is like this, and that would be, you know, you're moving your arms like this. Those cues are technically more frontal plane cues. So do they get the same result of activating the glute? Sure. But is it in the actual plane of motion that the activation occurs? No. So I try to get people to be more actually feel like they're screwing the feet into the ground and they're screwing the feet out or something like that so to for it to be this true rotational moment okay so more of a screwing action as opposed to a sliding action which would get more of an abduction rather than a rotation okay yeah. and you mention in your book that you can often tell when people have tight hips that they most likely will have stiff ankles and rigid feet whereas people who have um, unstable hips tend to have flat feet and so can you kind of explain that relationship yeah so there are several three key areas that i look at for optimizing function it is going to be the ankle the hips or technically the pelvis, but we'll put the pelvis and the hips together, and then the rib cage. So how much your rib cage can rotate, okay? In order to have optimal walking patterns, which to me, I'm just obsessed with walking and gait because it unlocks everything. Um, but in order to like move the way that your body needs to move so that you can transfer energy and unlock power, those are your three like gatekeepers, right? You wanna keep your, your T-spine or rib cage, pelvis and ankle unlocked. Now, if you take away one of those areas or you take away the range of motion, it becomes rigid or it loses flexibility, then the other areas totally lock up. It's like, you gotta have all and you can't have just one, right? So what you start to see is patterns in foot type associated with ankle mobility and then that has a correlation to what's happening in the pelvis. And then the pelvis has a correlation to what's happening in the rib cage. So a higher arched foot is typically correlated with more rigid. It's locked, it's stiff. It doesn't absorb impact force as well because of the structure. And then that causes typically a little bit more of a restriction in the ankle mobility. You can see patterns of 
tight hips because they're kind of rotated and stuck in their hips. They're what I call butt grippers. So they kind of lock into their glutes and they're just like really tight. And then they lock up their T-spine. So then that for the listeners, that could be someone who has shoulder pain, right? So what's really causing the shoulder pain? It's not the shoulder. It's that the whole rest of their body is completely locked up and they can't transfer energy through all of these joints. On the other side, you could have someone who has a collapsed foot, overpronation, flat feet, that's very unstable. It's unlocked, it's hypermobile, and it's it's lacking that that uh, stabilization that is necessary for power. Typically, this is correlated with a unstable pelvis and sleepy glutes. They have glute amnesia, like the butt is sleeping. Okay. And then that's going to translate to an unstable T-spine, which is typically in the diaphragm is how you'll see it. So they would be someone that might get um, knee pain when they run, um, plantar fasciitis, diffuse foot fatigue. It feels like they're working harder than they should to move because they're, they just don't have the stability in their body. Would you say that uh, in your clinical experience that flat feet or fallen arches is more common than the, the rigid foot, uh, high arch, arch foot? I would say yes. Um, and probably if I did like an actual research study and quantified it, maybe a little bit more. And the reason, so the reason of why that is, is that the... So gravity is just this constant weight on us, right? And if we fall to gravity, right, we just like succumb to this gravitational pressure, that path of least resistance is your feet are going to, that, that's essentially kind of the way gravity wants you to fall. So that's why I think that you see more pronation is because of that, that constant path of least resistance from the pressure of gravity. In my previous podcast with Dr. Peter Francis, um, we discussed the difference between flexible flatfoots or fallen arches and rigid flat feet. Uh, the former being one that we acquire through lifestyle and the latter, um, it can be considered a structural deformity. As a clinical podiatrist, can you perhaps explain the nuance of flat feet um, a little clearer and how we can identify whether or not we have flat feet, how to distinguish between the two types and um, perhaps what approaches we can take with either either of the two? Yeah, so what I'm going to do, I'm actually going to break it down into three. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you three types of flat feet. Okay, so there is, um, so when you have flat feet, flat feet kind of means no arch, right? So you're, you're lacking the arch. But overpronation, overpronation is a rotational imbalance. Okay. And that would be for the listeners, again, if they wanted to stand up and do it again, when you roll to the outside and then you roll to the inside, you rolling to the inside of the foot and collapsing the arch is that's the pronation, right? So that overpronated foot is not just flat, no arch. It is rolling inward and kind of spilling to the midline of the body. There's this kind of curvature to the inside of the foot. The leg rotates inward and the knee is typically valgus, right? So this, this is just kind of the rotational component of overpronation. So we have to start on the top of it. You have the overpronated foot, this rotation, okay? 
that's the parent class. But then over here, you have someone who has no arch, but it's not rotational. It's what I call a pancake foot. And it's just them flat to the ground, but no rotation. This is very much um, kind of like a genetic component where the bones are just parallel to the floor. I see these in certain populations. So I travel around the world a lot teaching and I see them in Africa and Asia. So they're kind of the older from like evolution, they're the older kind of populations in a sense that they typically have this pancake foot. Okay. And if you look at the bottom of the foot, you see no arch, it's just flat pancake, right? That's one type. Okay. When we go over to this overpronated type, which is what you were referencing before, that is where we break it down and we can have flexible or rigid. The flexible one is the one that if they're sitting on a chair and their foot is extended open chain, you see this beautiful arch. That is their arch potential, right? And you're like, oh, that is such a beautiful arch. They stand up, gravity, and they go boom, right? They just collapse inward, okay? That's the example of a overpronated foot. Then you have rigid overpronated, and that is the foot that sitting in the chair, open chain, legs are extended. Their foot is rotated inward into that overpronation, and it's stuck. Essentially, the flexible overpronated foot progresses the rigid overpronated foot, and then they're over here. So that's typically someone who's older. There's a lot of arthritis in the foot. Okay, it's typically really painful. Here, the flexible one, I'll totally break this down for you more if you want, can go even more. And it's broken down into ligament laxity, right? So they're hypermobile, or it is muscle weakness, right? So what's making that person lose their arch as soon as they stand up? In some people, it's because they have an actual ligament laxity. This is someone who um, you see it in children. Um, you can see it in teenagers. And then this is like the, the teenager who will get a bunion, right? So the deviation of the big toe, that's kind of this classic hypermobile ligament lax, flexible overpronated foot here. And then you have the whole group of those that they had an arch at some point, but because of inactivity or injury, the muscles that support the arch started getting weaker. And then now their foot is starting to collapse down. That's gonna be this one over here. So now I actually have one, two, four types of flat feet. <laughs> oh, that's why you're the expert. Um, but the, the, talking about the ligament laxity, would is that something that's that's genetic or is it a result of sort of the muscles giving way and and causing uh, all the connective tissues to start to become stretched and hypermobile over time? It could actually be both. So I can, typically it's clinical experience to know which one it is. Um, again, children is some of the easiest because that would be more genetic, right? And what is genetic when people say, oh, my flat feet are genetic. It's really not the flat feet directly. It is the connective tissue integrity. So my collagen characteristics are very unique to me, my genetics, how it's passed through my family, where others are going to be more um, kind of a higher integrity to their actual ligaments. Um, 
that that's one type. The one where you're explaining, like, is it just kind of over time and gravity and, you know, weakness that elongates the ligaments? Yes, that, that is something that typically presents more as the type of flat foot that has muscle weakness that starts to kind of progress and then you lengthen the ligaments and they can tear and then you eventually progress to this rigid overpronated foot. Okay, and somebody with, with ligament laxity, um, they usually present it, you know, not just in their feet, but elsewhere in their body as well. If you have the genetic predisposition for being, to having very uh, hypermobile joints that are inherently unstable, is that, is that right? A majority of time, yes. A majority, you would see it and you can actually pre-screen them and it's, you know, can you bring your thumb to your forearm? Can you hyperextend your elbow? Can you extend your knees? So there's um, several tests that you do for them to rule out an actual um, connective tissue disorder. I'm loosely using the word disorder. Um, but you can see an isolated ligament laxity in the foot, which okay. is really unique. And I think it's because of gravity. Okay. And in terms of foot strengthening, um, would for the uh, hyperlax uh, foot, flat foot, as well as the uh, muscular weakness and muscle atrophy foot, uh, flat foot, would you, would you put them on a strength, uh, foot strengthening protocol? How would you address those two issues? Yeah. So when I look at the overpronated foot that is, you know, hypermobile or it's a weakness in the muscles, then that's going to be a little bit of clinical experience again of do I do just corrective exercise and foot strengthening, or do I do corrective exercise and foot strengthening in conjunction with a arch support, right? That's a little bit of finessing. And I'm sure the listeners probably have that question of like, where, where, how do I know which way to go? The orthotic or arch supports component of this decision is based off of really that ligament laxity ligament laxity in the middle of the foot. And I don't want to make this too confusing, but in the middle of the foot is very hard to control with just corrective exercise. In someone who has just a little bit of the rear foot that's collapsing down, there's such great research showing that you could do six weeks of core foot glute strengthening and you'll help correct that. So I, that's kind of how I start to navigate it. Is it in the middle of the foot, like midfoot pronation is what it's called, or is it the rear foot and rear foot pronation? And depending on which it is, midfoot, I'm going to do the combination of arch support with corrective exercise, rear foot, definitely first starting with the corrective exercise. And a majority of them do really well with that. And you, you touched on orthotics and, uh, you know, I've, I've, got the sort of impression that despite you being a classically trained podiatrist, you're against orthotics in, in most cases. Um, why is that? And in what instances, you've just mentioned one, in what other instances would you um, get your clients into a pair of orthotics? And would this be a temporary solution, permanent solution? Um, sort of how do you navigate that? Yeah, so I try to use orthotics as little as possible. So it's in very specific situations that I would recommend artificial arch support, right? Um, because it could be a custom orthotic, but it could also be an over-the-counter arch support that people are using. Both of them are highly overused. 
um, and do become a little bit of a crutch that can weaken the foot. So I use it very selectively. And then based off of that, it's either a uh, activity specific integration, or it might be all the time that they're standing, which I'll go into that a little bit. Um, now, again, this ligament laxity component is very difficult to control with just corrective exercise. Let's say it's an individual who has to stand for work and they're starting to get foot fatigue and foot pain. I'm not surprised because they have ligament laxity, right? They don't have the integrity to support body weight and gravity. They're really best uh, using a custom orthotic or artificial art support because I'm just trying to control and, and not defy physics here, right? Still in addition, strengthen the foot because I don't want them to become dependent on that orthotic. Now, another scenario could be, let's say a runner who in their gait assessment has a little bit of uncontrolled overpronation because of maybe the timing of their glutes, their foot, it's just it's just too slow to control the, the rate at which impact is coming into the body. And they have a history of plantar fasciitis and Achilles tendonitis, let's say, so some sort of injury. Then I may say, okay, just because of your strength and your foot type and your injury history, when you run, I'm gonna have you use this orthotic or this arch support. But the day-to-day, -day, or if you're at the gym lifting, go barefoot, go minimal, right? Try to, try to strengthen your feet. Um, those are probably two of the most common ones. And then when you do get the flexible overpronated foot from muscle weakness that kind of passes the point of no return, it's a little bit too progressed, then you're really best looking at some sort of orthotic or artificial arch support. Typically the patient will navigate that because pain <laughs> is the indicator right? So I am using that to make my decision as well. And then, um, you know, also having them know that there are millions of people around the world who have their exact same foot type, but don't have pain and they don't need to be in orthotics. So it is a little bit scenario specific, which is why when I do, you know, podcasts and I try to guide people and I write and, and things like that, I don't make, uh, direct statements of this always equals this because that's not the way that it works. I try to navigate to what is realistic to that, to that individual. And then the last thing I'll add is if I have a patient or there's a listener and they're just not compliant and they have no interest to strengthen their feet, I can't make them do the corrective exercise. I have to do what's going to work for their lifestyle. I would hope that they will strengthen their feet because it's so important, but if their lifestyle right now doesn't favor that, then I have to help them in the way that I can, which would be most likely with the orthotic. You spoke a little bit about going barefoot and, and being in minimalistic footwear. Um, so you're obviously an advocate for being barefoot um, as much as possible, um, as your name of your book suggests, uh, Barefoot Strong. Um, what is it about modern footwear that troubles you? I mean, uh, is it the heel cushioning? Um, is it the arch support? Is it the toe spring? Um, aren't, they, aren't these uh, features supposed to protect the feet uh, in the way that they marketed? Yeah, so I'm a believer in trying to optimize the natural foot function, which means the spread and the rotation and the mobility, but also the contractions of the muscles and the stimulation of the skin in the bottom of the feet. So that, that's what 
a natural foot function would be entail all of that. Modern footwear, traditional footwear takes away all of those components. So from the foot mobility, most traditional shoes have counters, they have midsoles or shanks through them. So they don't rotate. Um, they're kind of more harder materials. They might be supported along the medial arch. So they're providing a lot of mechanical artificial restriction to natural foot movement. The other thing is the spread and the splay of the toes, which is super, super important to the timing of the foot contractions. So if we can't splay or spread the, the forefoot, then the foot becomes a little bit slower and you can actually associate that with stress fractures and plantar fasciitis and things like that. And then finally would absolutely be the cushion. The cushion of modern footwear absorbs the impact forces of dynamic movement but our foot is our foot itself is designed to absorb it, not the shoe, right? That's what our muscles do. And the longer you're in supportive cushion shoes, your small muscles of your feet actually become weaker. So if you ever do get out of the cushion shoes and you haven't trained your foot, then you can get injured. And then they say that's bad because of the minimal shoe and they blame the wrong thing. Um, but I try to direct people into that more minimal shod environment. But I always add the little caveat to that is that you have to be able to control that sensory stimulation, that degree of impact forces in that range of motion. If you cannot control it, then you will get injured. So I try to guide people from a traditional shoe into a minimal environment progressively they have to be doing daily foot mobilization, releasing the bottom of the feet on a ball or something like that. And they have to do intentional foot strengthening, like short foot exercise, which I speak about everywhere. Um, you can't just wear minimal shoes as the technique to strengthen the foot. That's like a runner running to train for running. Like you can't do that. <laughs> you have to do other stuff, right? Um, so that's kind of how I look at modern footwear. Now there is a time and place for traditional footwear. And that like everything is there's the gray and special exceptions to every rule. Okay, so two things I want, I want you to elaborate on uh, based on your explanation. One is you mentioned the transition um, when someone is not used to sort of minimalist footwear or training completely barefoot, there should be a sort of transition period. Um, how would you you know, what, why is that so important um, in your in your experience? Because I know in two th around 2009, you know, Vibram Five Fingers came out, it was all the craze, and then people started getting injured. And this, they started to, to build this bad reputation. And I remember when I was studying at university to become a sports scientist, um, I, I was already into barefoot running and, and minimalistic footwear from then. And I spoke to my lecturer and he said to me, oh, no, uh, those those things, they cause injury. Um, and 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 I understand where he's coming from, because there's so much literature that that shows the risks of minimalistic footwear. But the more I've researched and I've, I've come to realize, but perhaps it's not the footwear, but it's the, the it's the incorrect transition to that. So why is why is a transition period so important? Yeah, so you are going from a kind of this 
casted, supported, not functional, <laughs> delayed environment in traditional shoes. And then you're very rapidly throwing yourself into a high vibrational impact freedom of movement environment, which from like kind of the larger context of things doesn't seem like that injury should happen. But to put a little perspective on what your foot experiences every day is that we take on average, depending on the city you live in and your activity level, but 5,000 to 10,000 steps a day. When I lived in New York City, I did well over 20,000 steps a day, right? So to think for a second, every single one of those steps is one and a half times your body weight in force coming into your foot, going through your tendons, through your muscles and through your bones, right? And if you can't control that impact coming in and that impact is vibration. So for the listeners to understand that every time your foot hits the ground, your body and your bones are vibrating. So you have to be very rapidly and repetitively from a high endurance perspective, be able to absorb those vibrations. And if you don't, this is where you see plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, stress fractures are probably the three biggest ones. Um, and this is where I remember the New York Times doing a lot of negative press around the five fingers and blaming the five fingers. And really, to me, this is a representation of the lack of awareness of five fingers at the time that they should have had a very specific implementation criteria or foot strengthening or warnings, <laughs> something around how you go from supportive to minimal. But I don't think that they anticipated the rapid explosion of this uh, space and that you would be taking, you know, random everyday people from the couch to the five finger and the injury risk that would result from that. Um, now, I feel that today, there's much more awareness and education by minimal shoe companies of how to safely do it. Um, things to be cautious of, you know, be aware of this freedom of movement and what it means. So things are very different now, 10 years plus later, but there was a very, high uptick of potential injuries because of it. Okay. And say that barefoot shoes and barefoot movement is, uh, you know, maybe we've got to be in highly restrictive construction uh, footwear or we're a football player and they just don't make barefoot foot uh, soccer shoes, uh, soccer for the Americans. Sorry. You know, what can, what can people do? Um, I know like one of my uh, favorite physical therapist, Dr. Kelly Starrett, he, he always talks about performing basic daily maintenance on yourself. Um, so if you sit for long periods of time and you have to, or you, you've gone on a long car drive, you know, get out and, 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 and stretch the hips, you know, get into those anterior compartments, try and address some of that, um, those sticking points. Um, what's sort of a basic protocol that one can do on a daily basis with their feet if they are struggling with, uh, you know, we're having to wear high heels if you're if you're a lady and maybe you work in a job where they require that or you have to be in, in soccer shoes um, or you're just sort of transitioning to barefoot shoes and you just want to kind of get get ahead on uh, of things. W what would be sort of a good protocol to uh, to take? 
Yeah. So my daily reset, and we can call it daily maintenance. I actually really like that is you want to undo whatever that stress was. And that stress could you be wearing minimal shoes, but pounding the pavement for 10,000 steps. We have to undo and give a little bit of a reset or a TLC to our feet. Um, if you are wearing something narrow, narrow, like a high heel or a football cleat, um, is you want to then allow the foot to spread. So I'm a huge supporter of the toe spacers, where you put them in between the toes. Correct Toes is a brand. Um, there's so many now that are on the market. Uh, Amazon everywhere <laughs> probably has these toe spacers. They're silicone toe spacers. And that allows you to stretch the small muscles in the front of the foot and just let the toes kind of open and breathe. Um, for those that are not used to what that feels like, just think 30 minutes. This could be just wear those toe spacers for 30 minutes at the end of the day. As you get used to them, of course, you can progress and, and wear longer, but we just want to open things up. Second thing would be releasing the bottom of the foot. And that would be with, you know, standing on a golf ball at Nabosa. We have a neural ball. Rad roller has rad rounds. Honestly, I don't care. Even take a weight or a rolling pin and stand on it. Okay. Something, but to the muscles in the bottom of the feet, because the muscles in the bottom of the feet, remember that they're contracting very rapidly uh, more than 10,000 times a day because we use them when we balance in one place, right? So they're, they're constantly being used. They're a postural muscles and you can't stretch them. Small muscles like that, you can't stretch. So this is your way to recover them, okay, at the end of the day. And then the third and final area would be something for the ankle. Can you unlock the ankle? Is that rolling the calves, really the lower part of the calf, which is the soleus? So imagine this is my foot. It's the lower part towards the foot. And doing that with some sort of roller or a stick or a rod, just to give a little bit of that same TLC to that muscle, because it's used, it's postural. So it's used when we stand in one place, and then it's used when we're walking. Um, so those are the three daily TLC resets that I like for the feet. Um, of course, you can go higher and open up the hips and open up the T-spine, like I had mentioned earlier, because those are technically connected to the ankle. But depending on the time someone has, if you can do this in seven minutes, like you should be able to do it in seven minutes. I tell people to do it when they're brushing their teeth or doing something else at the same time to make it realistic. And it has to be a lifestyle. You, you mentioned you cannot stretch the the muscles because of how small they are. So that trigger point, is it, is it to increase blood flow in the area? What's the sort of purpose uh, behind the rolling? Yes, yeah, so you do increase circulation where part of increasing circulation is to flush out stuff as well. So you're flushing out, let's say lactic acid and things that become just a little bit static or stasis in one place, right? So you kind of want things to continuously be flowing versus um, think of, water sitting and it just kind of gets murky, right? You don't want the body or the tissue to be like that either. So the massage is for that fluidity and flushing, but also when muscles contract, you can get adhesions and kind of actual trigger points. This can cause an inhibitory response to those. So you do have an influence on the muscle spindles and the actual nerve fibers of them. Um, and I mean, technically you can also use it to 
activate the feet, which might be confusing to the listeners that, oh, if one relaxes, recovers and inhibits, then how can it also simultaneously activate? Um, by activating, you technically do recover, almost like a, a massage, you're just kind of stimulating the nervous system to then just stay connected. So I love to have this dual release recovery, but neurostimulation at the same time. Okay, got you. And talking about uh, stimulation, sensory feedback, proprioception, um, I know this is this is the things you, you I know you love to talk about. Um, and our sense of feeling with the ground is so important to you know for our feet stability, and uh, you know to build a strong neural connection with the the rest of the body. And as part of a deeper discussion along those lines, I'd like to talk about the different surfaces we walk and run on and exercise on. Um, how do concrete surfaces, tarred surfaces, for example, um, affect our ability, sort of the impact forces? Uh, in your book, you, you mentioned about vibrations and how the different mediums, um, you know, there's different frequencies. Maybe you can, you can sort of uh, start us off on, on that discussion. Yeah, so for the listeners, remember that impact forces are vibration, right? You had said that as well, that we get this foot to surface interaction and then vibrations are created. Um, almost I'm hitting my desk, so sound, right? So as I hit the desk, I create sound waves and sound is vibration. So vibration is going to be the stimuli to us, okay? So it's an important stimulation. Now, when the foot strikes the ground, we want there to be this symbiotic relationship with the ground, which means that as I strike the surface, the surface needs to vibrate and I vibrate. So we kind of vibrate together. That's, that's energy transfer. This is going back to physics, right? So it's just this energy transfer between the two units. And that is how we actually move. If we didn't get energy from the ground and that energy transfer, we would not be moving. So having said that, the surface and you need this symbiotic relationship. So every surface vibrates differently. The best surfaces that vibrate are typically natural. So wood, like a hard wood floor in New York City, we would have these old dance studios and the floor would flex underneath you. That's giving you energy when you run on a trail or the earth, dirt, grass, right? It's natural, so it's going to vibrate, okay? Soon as we start to get into artificial surfaces like concrete, <laughs> it's the best example, um, concrete does not vibrate, right? Think of if you, I always give the example, if you've ever punched a wall, which is like a brick wall, <laughs> you, it, it hurts because you're getting all of that back reverberation. That same thing is happening when you are pounding the pavement, the concrete, it does not vibrate. So you get this excess uptick in your vibration. So now you have more to deal with, right? And then you can get injured. Um, rubber, rubber flooring in commercial gyms that people use, it's designed to actually damp the, the excess vibration from concrete, right? But the rubber damps almost all of the vibrations. So when you move and you do dynamic activity on thick rubber commercial gym flooring, you're really not getting, you're not getting anything from that ground. It's almost like trying to do dynamic movement on a yoga mat. The yoga mat is soft and it, it's taking all of your energy. Same thing with sand. So if you run on the beach, 
right? And you're on the soft sand, you are not getting any energy from that surface. We want surfaces typically to be harder, not like concrete hard because the, the medium doesn't vibrate, right? But hard wood, hard surface vibrates and it gives you energy. Um, AstroTurf, this is one that some of the listeners might experience because it's in different facilities. AstroTurf, it depends on how they've actually designed the floor. They can put a lot of cushion. Some of the facilities will put too much cushion under the AstroTurf and you actually don't get a lot of energy from that surface. So we want to kind of think really well about the surfaces that we're on and then potentially the design of the surface. So I, I get contacted by a lot of facilities who are saying like, I want to optimize the experience in my facility, which what is the best floor? And I'll often tell them like a wood floor, but you can't put wood on concrete, right? If I just have concrete and I put wood literally on the concrete, that's not gonna vibrate, <laughs> right? So there has to be some suspension between the concrete of today's reality and what we know is the best surface for vibration. Suspended floors are very expensive. So you want to be navigating in the best way that you could do it. But that, that really would be the best commercial setting that you could get would be some sort of suspended floor. Um, a great example of a floor people might experience is the Olympic lifting platform, right? It's wood and it's, it's elevated. So it's actually vibrating for those lifters, right? And when they drop on the weights, right? Typically it's on the side and you actually kind of get this vibration through it. Um, so there's an intent behind why they're using wood for those Olympic lifting platforms. Um, so I try to encourage people to think of that. It's not just what are the shoes that I'm wearing or am I training with no shoes? But then you have to ask yourself, what is the surface that I'm training on. Okay, so, but now uh, we don't all have access to the perfect floor. So uh, Dr. Francis, what he, what he advocates is surface variation, um, changing the surface as much as possible as a way to mitigate those risks, um, the overloading of tissues in, in one specific way. Um, and, and perhaps that can reduce overuse injuries. Um, is this something that you would uh, advocate for your clients um, if they don't have access to the perfect running surface or, um, you know, just change it up as often as possible just to mitigate the risks? Does that seem fair, fair to you? Yes, um, I will add one exception to that or a disclaimer on that. So yes, text, uh, surface variability and then surface characteristic variability, right? And this is a little bit of where, where and why I designed Naboso, right? Is that if you're on a rubber floor and then you're on a concrete floor and then you're on a wood floor, the, the component that you're actually playing around with is, is the vibration and kind of the durometer of the hardness of that surface. But there's other characteristics of surfaces, texture, is one in Noboso's textured mats. That's why I designed it because texture is another stimuli that comes through your feet and the nerves in your feet. So could you, instead of just thinking of all these flat, smooth surfaces that you are varying, could you then incorporate like pebble path, right? Technically that is now, it's a different surface. It's a different uh, texture, pressure, shape, 
inclination declinations, right? So we're kind of playing around with irregularities in surface interfaces. Yeah, right? So add, add that. I just want the listeners to think of that as well, right? So surface hardness, okay, surface vibration, surface texture, surface inclinations and shapes and irregularities. These are characteristics. So you want to do that. Now, my little disclaimer over here has to do with runners, okay? Because if a runner is constantly changing their surface they run on and your muscles and the timing and the anticipation of the surface is not accurate, you can get injured. So uh, you have to allow an adaptation period to these surfaces. An example would be if I'm used to running on an indoor track and then suddenly I go to run outside because I want to create surface variability, my, my muscles and my loading response isn't tuned to the vibration of outside and then I can get injured. Um, so that's why I try to be a little bit careful about surface variability for the runners. Totally. And I've experienced that firsthand. Um, we mentioned in one of our previous videos where we were uh, presenting this topic on on surface variability and um, I gave the example of uh, I was running indoors and on the tarmac uh, for extended period of time and I decided one day to change it up and do a trail run and I ended up spraining my ankle during that training run a uh, trail run and uh, you know thinking back what I should have done is walk the trail run a few times maybe done a few intervals and maybe two three weeks go by before going and doing a hard run on that trail so as you say just to start to sort of tune my you know my body to that surface and 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 uh, get the anticipation and all the timing uh, timing correctly talking about texture and surface um, you've maybe you can uh, talk to us about your Naboso technology what's the sort of uh, I've been wearing your inner soles for some time, um, and I absolutely love them, by the way. I, I, I sort of think of them as bringing the outdoors into my shoes, um, because, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because really when you go outside, if you're not walking on a, a man-made surface, there's so much texture. Um, mm -hmm. But in, indoors, everything is flat and slick, and um, so it's, it's like bringing the outdoors into, into your shoes. So I, I absolutely love them. But maybe you can explain it uh, and the science behind it and why you, you're so passionate about Naboso and why you developed it in the first place. Yeah, and thank you for saying that. And that, that really is why I developed it, is try to get even more out of the feet, the barefoot, foot function, foot connection. Because minimal shoes is great, that's a first step, but minimal shoes still create some degree of sensory disconnection from the ground. Like you said, this difference in textures and irregularities and things like that, that is very stimulating to the nervous system. So Naboso, I have just so those just can see that it's, this is just one example of our insoles, but we have insoles, mats, flooring, um, a release ball, and all of them have texture or really two-point discrimination. So it's the ability to differentiate or um, it's called acuity. So sense that there's two points, not it's one blob, right? So that it's a very subtle discrimination. That 
builds and stimulates the nervous system that helps to connect to your foot, foot position, ground awareness, but then really overall body awareness. We have people that have seen improvements in balance, posture, gait, um, athletic performance, recovery from ankle sprains and other injuries, people who have to stand on their feet for work, who feel decreased foot fatigue and foot pain, lower, um, decreased lower back pain. And really it's just saying like, hey, your foot is a sensory conduit. It's a sensory gateway. We have to stimulate it. And all shoes, even the most minimal shoes, don't stimulate it as much as they would. So we bring the barefoot into the shoe or we bring the outside into the shoe, like you said. And it's now we're into our fourth year, really, really taking off now that we have people that are um, really seeing that experience. I think at first people are like, what? And then they try it like you did. And then they're like, oh, wow, I can feel a difference, right? Um, and then we're doing research to support what people are feeling to just support this space. And it's always my goal to bring attention to the sensory side of the foot and just keep paying attention to how important the foot is from sensory and overall movement and longevity. And this is my way of supporting that. Totally. I, I heard you say in, in one podcast, and I thought it was it's perfect. It's like Braille for the feet. Yes. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It was so, it was so well put. Um, and really, that's the way I feel. I feel like uh, I'm learning a new language when I wear the inner soles. Um, yes. So, yeah, awesome. And, and how there's different soles, uh, different inners. Can you kind of explain the difference between the Activate and the, the one that you use for training, how they're swappable? Absolutely. So we have four insoles and they're on increasing level of stimulation. The performance, which I've shown you, which is the red one, that's the lowest. And then it goes activation, neuro and duo. All of them, we recommend based off of your level of foot sensitivity or activity. But just like the surface variability, we believe in texture variability. So we ultimately want people to be alternating the different insoles so you can keep the brain guessing in a, in a sense. And then that shapes neuroplasticity and just drives further foot function, which is our goal. Oh, that's brilliant. And uh, something that I've, I've, I've read a lot about is uh, falls in the elderly due to a poor balance, problems with the feet. This type of neural stimulation through texture and whatever, it, it, well, could this help elderly people in just tr building that, uh, you know, that feeling again with, with different textures in the ground? Yes, yeah, so that's actually one of our greatest applications is with seniors, people who have neuropathy, people who have had a stroke. And we've done several pilots around it that have demonstrated a huge improvement in foot awareness and improved balance when they walk. And then we're doing several hospital-based studies to further demonstrate that. Um, and those are, we're removed from those, so we don't have our bias in it. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a really promising application. And we say that we're just turning the noise up the volume or the noise to the stimulation through their feet. Okay. And where do you see the future of this type of technology? Um, you know, you've, you've got a mat now as well, a gym mat uh, that you can exercise on. So where do you see this going with sort of playing around with textures and yeah. It being a permanent or an industry shift that there is this thing of a sensory insole. When people think insole, they're not just going to think artificial arch support. 
that they will think, ah, there's this other role that I can get through my feet. And then in the um, kind of fitness and athletic performance space is similar. Uh, what kinesiology tape did to the awareness of proprioception. I want Naboso to be a staple, right? What foam rollers and trigger point and all these other companies have done for myofascial work. Same thing for what I want with Naboso. It's just this accepted part of human movement, wellness, and performance that people think of when they think nervous system. Okay. Well, we'll drop links to the Naboso uh, products down below. And also you've kindly given us a discount code for all of our, our audience that'll be placed in the show notes as well. Um, so yeah, I think that concludes our conversation. I don't want to take any more of your time. You've hit us with some serious knowledge bombs and I'm, I'm very grateful um, that you've taken the time to speak with us. And perhaps we can do this again because there's still so much I want to talk about, uh, things like the pelvic floor and uh, there's just there's so many, um, you know, so many other topics to talk about relating to the feet and, and movement in general. So uh, perhaps we can have you on again in the future. Absolutely. I would be honored to be back. Thanks for watching episode two of the Exercising Health podcast. If you found this interview insightful, please like, share and subscribe. But until next time, keep on exercising your health. Cheers. Mm -hmm.